Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. In commemoration of Veterans Day this Friday, joining us is my good friend E.J. Harold. He is a retired United States Army colonel and former uh, NATO Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Defense Investment. He is now the chief strategist of a unique group, Veterans Coalition International, founded in 2022 that aims to improve veteran service and care among allied militaries. As their motto says, we fight together we heal together. EJ, thanks so very much uh, for joining us for what is uh, a special program. Thank you. Well, Vago, it's always a pleasure to be on your show, and uh, particularly so today with a, uh, a timely topic that is very close to my heart. Uh, it, it is uh, indeed. Uh, we've uh, talked about that. Your family uh, for uh, generations has been about service. Uh, you went to West Point and so did your sons, and we'll get to that. Before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, EJ, tell us a little bit about uh, this uh, fascinating group. It was founded initially as a Danish-American uh, organization uh, and its unique mission. So the Veteran Coalition International uh, is the brainchild of uh, my buddy Steve Williams, West Point class of 82, and former president of Lockheed Martin Europe. Uh, Steve had been supporting veterans uh, organizations in Europe wherever he was working and stationed for Lockheed Martin and uh, became particularly close to the veteran group that formed in uh, uh, Denmark in the wake of their service in Afghanistan. And what he learned from his interaction with them was the, uh, the need within allied and partner countries for greater understanding of how to take care of veterans. The, the Danish veterans that had come home, came home with no obvious support and had to create it themselves. And so we decided to uh, expand that and take it to the other nations uh, in the alliance and particularly the acute problem in Europe, and that is the problem of Ukraine. Right. Um, and I want to get to that because you visited Ukraine uh, in uh, August uh, as in your uh, current uh, capacity. Uh, and I want to give a shout out to Steve. He's a wonderful uh, guy and have known him for a very long period of time. And uh, he was the U.S. president of uh, the Danish firm's uh, Ter Terma's operation in the United States. Uh, and so that's a great Danish uh, angle uh, that got Steve uh, involved on the, on the Danish side of that equation. Um Every nation has veterans, and where the challenges really are the same, the practices can offer often differ, right? We in the United States are sometimes critical of the network uh, and the support that we give our veterans, uh, more than 25 million of them. But the United States actually really leads the way uh, around the world in many respects. Give us a sense for what uh, you know our allies can learn from our approach and what we can learn from some of their approaches uh, on how they do sort of through service uh, and, and post-service care. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And it's one that I've been asked by uh, defense attaches as we've briefed the embassies here in town about our, uh, our initiatives. And uh, it really is a two-way street. 
so yes, as you point out, the U.S. has uh, a great deal of experience in caring for veterans uh, because we've been so active in the world and had uh, a need to address those, uh, those challenges that are faced. And we can share lessons learned and best practices with other nations for them to adapt to their local conditions. But you know, the US can also learn from uh, our uh, allied and uh, partner nation comrades. And a good, a good example of that is the United States has been wringing our hands about the problem of veteran suicide uh, now for the last couple of years and have not really found solutions to the challenge. Uh, and there are many aspects of suicide that are uh, at play here. There are reasons why folks are taking their lives, but the experience of the Danish who fought in some of the most intense fighting in Afghanistan, uh, yet they've come home from that conflict and they've had zero, none uh, suicide uh, losses. So what is it that they're doing or what is it in their cultural experience or in the support that they are able to provide to each other or is provided to them by their, uh, their communities that has led to this remarkable uh, condition? We don't know that answer, but perhaps the, uh, the Danes can share something with uh, the Americans that would be useful in that regard. Let me, you know, you, you said that it's it's not clear and clearly one of the roles of the organization is, um, you know, to, to build out that deeper uh, understanding, as you just mentioned. But is there anything sort of off the top uh, in terms of whether this is a military problem, a societal problem, an American problem? Because I do think it's it's fascinating that that some folks did serve and yet they don't have this problem. And, and we do. That's that's the big question, Vago. It's not just us, the Veteran Coalition International, that are asking this question. It's the Veterans Administration in the United States. It's uh, uh, the Pentagon. Everybody is is struggling with this issue, and we're seeing, as you uh, rightly alluded to, that it's not just a military problem. It's a societal problem, and it's we're we're not quite clear yet on what the root causes or the the stimulus for uh, the, the problem is, but uh, we're certainly hopeful that in dealing with our, uh, our partners in other nations that we'll learn something from them that may be useful here at home. Uh, in uh, indeed, and uh, you know whether it's social media as well, because obviously we're seeing this uh, unfortunately being reflected in teens with without any service uh, at, at all, whether it's online bullying or 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 shaming or what what have you. Um, you're a West Point grad, uh, proud uh, uh, class of 1981. Uh, you retired from the army in 2007. When you entered the army. Um, it, the army you entered is a very different army from the army in which, uh, from which you retired in 2007. Uh, unfortunately, even in 2007, you know, uh, you know, I, I knew the command sergeant major uh, of the Joint uh, Improvised Explosive Device uh, Defeat Agency. You know, he had been IED something like 38 times. I believe he told me, you know, four times in one day. And the pressure was, hey, just get back in the, you know, he's a combat engineer, get back in the saddle, here's your Advil, uh, and you've got a job to do. Uh, and he once confided in me that it had completely changed him. 
you know, so you understand the devastating impact of this. And there is a sense that folks after the fact are like, wait a minute, you know, there are a whole bunch of very unique needs that come with this community. From your standpoint, how much did the how much has the army changed from the army you joined or the army and the force your dad joined, for example, and the force that exists today, given your sons continue to serve? Well, look, my uh, my experience was probably closer to my father's in the 1950s uh, U.S. Army uh, than my son's experience is to mine uh, today. When I came into the army, it was very much what you described uh, the, the sergeant major uh his experience, uh, you just got on with things. You, 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 you did the job, and you didn't, uh, you didn't snivel because you had a cold. You uh, didn't uh, go running to the doctor for every uh, paper cut. Uh, you just got on with uh, things and moved out. When I was uh, a young father, my my sons were born and i happened to be fortunate enough not to be deployed but i went back to work uh, i was surprised to talk to my younger son when he was a company commander telling me that he was taking paternity leave uh, to be at home i said but you didn't do anything it was your wife who had the child he said dad the army's changed and they recognized that and uh, they make time for us to, uh, to, to be with and take care of our families. And I couldn't fault him and I couldn't fault the army for having humanized uh, service, notwithstanding that uh, I, I sympathize with the commanders who have to deal with the, uh, the extra headache of trying to manage personnel and accomplish all of the tasks that they have to do. Um, you know, uh, what, and I'm, I'm glad for that, uh, uh, transformation. I mean, my father-in-law, uh, served in the Korean war as a 105, uh, in a 105 artillery, uh, unit. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, there's a whole bunch of, you know, I mean, he has never used one single veteran service that he's entitled to, uh, in part because he's like, yeah, I mean, I'm an artilleryman. I mean, I got hearing damage. Oh, well, it kind of, you know, sort of goes with the, goes with the job. Um, but let me take you to uh, the, the, the notion of concentrated service. So we have gone to an all-volunteer military. It's the 50th anniversary uh, of, of that great transformation. And yet during this period, we said that, well, a smaller number of much better trained and compensated people is the right way to go. But yet in Iraq and Afghanistan, it was the same people over and over and over again uh, going in the deployment barrel, we did not want to do a larger mobilization. We did not want to spread that burden. And we found, unfortunately, that we hurt people in the process of doing that, um, both impaired them in their potential ability to serve in uniform, but also then challenges that are through life challenges. Um, do we need to have a little bit of a different model ultimately, right? I mean, there's a New York Times story about how 155 millimeter marine artillerymen uh, are coming down with all manner of afflictions. The Marine Corps and the Pentagon are studying them uh, about whether or not it might be traumatic brain injury because of these heavy rounds and bigger charges that we're using. And small units are just on the line incessantly without break. Um, do, we, do we need to have a different model EJ, well, ultimately, it, that's a that's a uh, that's a very complex question. A couple of 
things that I, I can pull out of that though. First is I've always been a big believer in national service. And so there's that as an option, whether that changes the, the arithmetic of how many people are being deployed remains to be seen. Um, the other piece is that uh, we are experiencing a great deal of difficulty in recruiting in most of the armed forces uh, for a variety of socioeconomic uh, reasons. Some of it is uh, better pay in, or good pay in the civilian sector, <clears throat> pardon me, available jobs uh, in, the, in the civilian sector. Uh, so the, the military is having to compete for uh, a, a small and a smaller able pool uh, available to withstand the rigors of uh, military service. So there's a lot of reasons why uh, it makes sense to change the way we recruit or look at uh, adding to the pool with a combination of volunteer and compulsory uh, service. Uh, but you know, with rolling back completely to a uh, to a draft uh, is probably not going to be politically sellable nor uh, particularly palatable to the, uh, the the population of the United States, unless there's a an existential threat that everybody believes uh, has to be addressed, and so that is the caveat uh, for changing our model. Uh, I think that there's a, a great deal to be said about voluntary national service, whether that's in uniform or in some other community-based uh, programs. And you know, we'll see if, uh, if that proposal gets anywhere. EJ, let me uh, take you to uh, Ukraine. You visited uh, in August. Um, give us a sense on the toll and the burden Ukraine is bearing. You know, we we have, it's uh, amazing that the United States has been su supporting Ukraine. I think most agree that uh, this uh, is a very important fight and it is critically important that you, the Ukrainians will uh, win it. Uh, on the other hand, the unfortunate part of this is, you know, that, that we're also willing to fight to the last Ukrainian in this. They're the ones who are bearing the burden and it is a nation of less than 36 million people now, if you account for all the people who left, against a nation of 144 million people, ultimately, who puts no value on life, ultimately. Um, what did you see uh, on that visit? And what is the burden that Ukraine is bearing in caring for its veterans? Because it's not as good at the golden hour as we are. There are a lot of challenges. Um, what, what was your sense? What did you come away with from that trip? So it was a, uh, it was a fascinating trip. I've, I've been going into Ukraine since 2012 when I started at NATO. I was the uh, co-chairman of the uh, NATO-Ukraine working group and had cause uh, at least once a year to go visit uh, different cities in Ukraine in, in the uh, conduct of that work. And the dramatic change in attitude and in Ukrainian identity over this 10-year period was on display and very palpable to me during, during our visit in August. We were there ostensibly on a, Ukraine, uh, a humanitarian support mission, and our purpose was to go in, meet with the Minister of Veterans Affairs, meet with some of the uh, 
uh, NGOs doing veteran support work and to bring out a number of wounded warriors for a warrior week in Denmark with our American and Danish uh, wounded warriors uh, who have been meeting yearly uh, in the US and Denmark. Uh, so adding uh, the Ukrainians to this event uh, was, was considered to be a, an important part of our work. What I saw in August was at, the, at one and the same time, heartrending and uh, inspiring. We visited prostheticists, we visited uh, physical therapy uh, locations, we visited uh, trauma centers. And what we found when we met the, uh, the wounded warriors was a great deal of pride in their service, a great deal of pride in being Ukrainian, uh, a resolve not to allow the Russians to defeat them and that they would continue to, uh, to proudly fight for their nation uh, in ways that when I first started going to Ukraine, I did not detect that kind of national spirit and national identity. Uh, it was still very much post-Soviet and uh, uh, still a lot of Russian speakers, etc. Here it was all Ukrainian speakers or English speakers because they have identified English as a critical skill uh, for their future in the world and particularly uh, in interacting with their European neighbors, whether that be one-on-one -on -one, uh, through the EU or through NATO when they eventually get membership in either one of those organizations. The veterans we met at the trauma center were all amputees. They had lost feet, hands, arms, legs, um, in some cases, uh, one or both eyes. Uh, it was heartbreaking to see, and yet the attitudes and the, uh, the, 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 the instant camaraderie between soldiers, as all of us on this trip were, uh, was really heartwarming. And we have, uh, since coming back, been able to connect uh, their caregivers with uh, the Veterans Administration uh, to seek advice and counsel on how to deal with some of the, the uh, more difficult cases. And it was really a, uh, an, an eye-opening experience. And it was the event that galvanized my intent uh, to become even more involved in Veteran Coalition International. And that's how I went from being a strategic advisor to becoming the chief strategist. Um, let me uh, take you uh, two more uh, questions uh, before we uh, wrap. First, um, we are doing an extraordinary job supporting our Ukrainian allies who are in the breach. Uh, and uh, we are uh, committed and indeed obligated, uh, I believe, to help them and to help them win. Because I think, uh, as the president has said, and many other leaders have said, it is imperative that we win and the Russians lose in this. How is it that the international community should be helping Ukrainian veterans, uh, EJ, ultimately, that goes beyond just support for prosthetics and the like? Uh, because this is a fight on our collective behalf, and it is absolutely brutal uh, on Ukrainians, as you said. I mean, the price they're paying in dead and wounded and displaced and damaged is is horrific. Um 
what what is the obligation we have not just to support the fight but then support the after fight well look the the immediate need is to support the fight that's materiel and training and uh and the uh, the ammunition and means by which they are continuing to resist and take the fight to the russians that's the first order of business the second order of business is support to the population so that they can continue to lead their lives even in wartime conditions and to uh, uh, to prosper uh, under incredible strains on their economy on their uh, social uh, uh, well-being and on their uh, personal interactions uh, the third thing is that we have developed a concept in support of our veterans called polytrauma and uh, the treatment of polytrauma and, and what that means is that uh, injuries whether it's traumatic brain injury amputations uh, or or simply getting damaged and then getting sewn back up and rehabilitated uh, doesn't just affect the body part or or one thing it's the impact on the whole person and the body systems that make up our our individual selves and all of those need to be treated simultaneously or sequentially but there's there's more than one thing to do it's not just stitches and go home or it's not just uh, get a prosthetic and move on with your life uh, there's more to it there's uh, psychological counseling there's physical uh, therapies there's uh, diet and exercise uh, counseling. There's all kinds of things that go into this. This is not a concept that exists in the Ukrainian uh, medical system and arguably not in many of the European uh, uh, medical systems either. And we're working with a, an organization called polytrauma.org that is attempting to establish a facility that will help not only the Ukrainians, but will help the Ukrainians and any other uh, Europeans that need the support. The, the facility is to be established in Poland uh, near the border with Ukraine to facilitate uh, transport of the injured and their families because the families contribute to the, uh, the therapies and the healing and to be available for uh, wounded warriors from across the European continent. Uh, this is being done in co collaboration with uh, U.S. medical facilities. I believe it's Cedar sinai and Johns Hopkins are involved, uh, but also uh, the Polish uh, uh, me medical system and uh, advisors from the U.S. Veterans Administration. So it's it's quite a uh, an effort, and it is something that can be done to address the burden in Ukraine. Um, let me uh, ask you, uh, what's next? Uh, you guys are going to have a very busy year, especially next year when we uh, commemorate the 75th anniversary uh, of the Washington Treaty and the Atlantic Alliance. Uh, talk to us about how you guys are building up to that and the role you're going to play. Yeah, Vago, that's, we're very excited about this. You know, As you pointed out at the top of the show, uh, VCI, as we call ourselves, is uh, a, a relatively young organization. The work with the Danish Veterans Group has go goes back to about 2015 or 2016. So we're psychologically established for about eight years. Uh, but 
statutorily only since last year uh, as a 501c3. We're trying to uh, draw attention at NATO to the need for international recognition of an obligation to assist in addressing the issues that affect veterans. Veterans who have been deployed by NATO nations and partner nations in the fights that we've asked them to contribute to, who now have challenges that need to be addressed and ought to be uh, recognized at that level as, uh, as worthy topics of discussion within the Alliance. So we're, we're trying to organize an event in the margins of the summit next year. We're targeting the day before the summit, 8 July, for an event at Arlington Cemetery. And we, we style it as a reverse salute. We're asking NATO nations and partners to bring their national flag and a uh, serving member of their armed forces uh, to carry that flag, and also to bring their veterans and their surviving family members uh, to be part of their national delegation to this event. And the people on the stage, if you will, will be former leaders who have continued to support the veterans movement uh, in their after their service, either as politicians or uh, senior military officers. And the idea is a reverse salute. They will be saluting the assembled veterans and serving members of the armed forces for their contributions to making NATO the success that it has been for 75 years in the, in the operations that it's been involved in, and hopefully uh, will continue to go for 75 or more years. We're very excited to uh, organize this event, and we've already had very positive discussions with uh, the, the leader of the NATO Summit Task Force and the representatives on the US Summit Task Force about uh, organizing and conducting this event. And every nation that I've addressed so far has been enthusiastic about having their soldiers represented uh, in this event uh, next July. So we're, we're optimistic that this will come off. We'll be looking for industry sponsors and uh, the event will finish with a reception in the Military Women's Memorial after the uh, formal uh, uh, proceedings. And uh, in about uh, 30 seconds, what's the next uh, stage of veterans care in, in the United States? It's great that we're working together with the allies and partners that fought uh, and died with us in Iraq, Afghanistan, and continuing in the Syria campaign. What's next for American veterans care from your standpoint? To answer that question is a little bit difficult. The, uh, the current service available through the Veterans Administration, through organizations like uh, the Wounded Warrior Project and uh, Tragedy Assistance uh, Program for Survivors, TAPS. Uh, these are all great programs that are doing uh, terrific work for our, our veterans. The, the passage of the PACT Act was significant this year. Uh, the, the legislation that expands the number of presumed ailments that will be automatically cared for by, uh, uh, by the U.S. government is a great uh, boon to the veteran community. Uh, but there will always be things that can be improved upon, and we're going to continue to, uh, to try to identify and focus our efforts to make sure that 
the organizations addressing those are connected to the folks that can help them be successful so that all veterans are receiving uh, access to the care that they need and have have earned by their service. EJ, thank you so very much uh, for uh, doing what you're doing. Uh, congratulations on the new uh, organization. We wish you uh, well. Uh, thank you for your service, for your family's service, and uh, for your uh, son's continuing service uh, and your continuing service. We appreciate it very much. It's my pleasure, Valga. Thank you for having me today. Uh, it is a pleasure. Hope you and yours have a great Veterans Day. And thanks to all of you for joining us. And a special thanks to Bell and all of our sponsors that make this program possible. I uh, hope you have a great day and we'll see you again tomorrow.